All right. I, good morning, everybody. We've, I think my wife and I have been here for four years now, and uh, just so blessed by this church body. I love, I get to just be here worshiping with you all uh, every week, and uh, so this is a different view, but it's, it's fun this way too, I guess. So uh, I'm excited to share. When you're, when you're not the regular speaker, uh, one of two things happens. Sometimes you get assigned a passage to teach, and that's great. Um, it, it really is great, but sometimes, you know, you might get the assigned the head coverings passage or something like that. Um, <laughs> But, uh, but the, the other thing that you can have happen is you get to pick to talk about whatever you want to, and this is what I get to do this morning. So when this happens, you don't pick the head coverings passage. You just go to uh, the, the most exciting passage that you can think of in the Bible. And uh, for me, that is Revelation 21 and 22. So we're already in an amen just by announcing the passage. This is going to be a good morning. Uh, so if you, if you want to turn with your, in your Bibles there to Revelation 21 and 22, that's what we're going to look at. And basically, as we, as we look at this, we are, we are going to the end of the story. These are the last pages in the entire Bible. This is how God will wrap up all of human history. And, and it, is, it is basically the best news that we could possibly imagine. I mean, that there is no way that we could sit down and try and figure out how would human history end in a way that's, that's satisfying, that's great, that's everything we've ever longed for. There's no way we could come up with anything that comes close to what God has written here about how he's going to wrap things up at the end of the Bible. So the reality is that every, every, throughout human history, every human being has had this persistent longing. And we're not really sure, you know, what that longing is or what it entails or what we're really longing for or how to achieve it. But that longing is there. And it's been there throughout human history. So we, we hear it in modern song lyrics, um, so, somewhat modern. The, the Rolling Stones, they sang... Uh, I can't get no satisfaction, uh, but, they, but I try, and I try, and I try, and I try, but, you know, it's just not there. It's elusive, right? Or John Mayer saying, um, something's missing, and I don't know how to fix it. You know, so he's looking. What's that piece? Where is it? I've tried everything. Where is it? Uh, you too said it famously in saying, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And these are sort of iconic expressions of something that we all feel all the time. We, we all know that something is missing. We know that there's some bit of satisfaction that we, we're wired for, we long for, but we can't quite get our hands around it. It's always elusive. And it's, it's the same in every movie we watch, it's there. In every uh, great work of literature throughout human history, it's there. In every world religion, that longing is present. Longing for something that's just beyond our grasp that we can't quite attain, that we can't quite figure it out. Every, every work of philosophy, all of it is about this longing that's there in the human heart. We know that life is meaningful, but, but we don't know quite why it's as meaningful as we know it must be. We know that the world is broken, that something about the way this world is is not going as it should, but we don't know why. And we, we can't figure out how do we know that it should be better. I don't know, but we just know that things are not happening now the way that they ought to happen. And we can't find a solution. We can't find an answer. The, the amazing thing, the great, great thing is that we as Christians— we actually know that answer. The Bible actually gives us the answer. It explains why that longing is there, because we are human beings made in the image of God, because this is his world, and we're designed for fellowship with him. We know why things are not the way that they should be now, and, and we get this beautiful picture now as we turn to the end of the Bible of exactly how that longing will be fulfilled. The, these are some of my favorite passages in the Bible. These are some of the most important passages in the Bible, because they give us this sense of where we are headed and why it matters so much. So let's, let's 
turn there. Um, so if you're, you're in Revelation 21, here's, here's the thing is I, probably to be honest, the best way to do it this morning would be for me just to read the passage and then sit down and we sing some songs about it. Uh, that would really be, the, these, these are so imaginative, but you, you all know that I'm not going to do that. Um, <clears throat> I, yeah, anyway, this is just how we're taught as preachers. You got to say a lot about it. Um, but uh, but the, the most powerful things that we will do this morning is actually just reading these passages. And so as I, as I read, we're going to kind of take it in chunks, read a big chunk, and then we'll, we'll just talk about it a little bit, try to process some of the key features of what's being said there. But as I read these, uh, John is seeing these things in, in a vision. So he's, he's seeing these events uh, played out uh, some kind of visionary screen. He's hearing voices. He's seeing all these things. So try as we read this to experience it along with John as he sees this. And let's start in Revelation 21. Let's just look at the first uh, five verses here. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Just amazing, right? This picture of, okay, John is there and he sees a new heavens and a new earth coming down out of heaven, a new Jerusalem adorned as a bride. I mean, he just sees this beautiful picture, new heavens, new earth. It's this new creation. And it might make us wonder at this point, okay, what, what, what's wrong with the old creation, right? I mean, we kind of like it here, don't we? I don't know, we get different opinion on that. I like it here. I think this is a great world that God made. Uh, and, and sometimes as Christians, we have this, this thought of, you know, kind of going to heaven when we die. The beautiful picture here is that John actually portrays, what John sees is not us dying and going off to heaven, but what we see is human history ends and heaven comes to us. God is bringing the new heavens, new earth down to us. It's just like when Jesus came into the earth as a baby, that, that he came to us in the midst of our situation. Now heaven is coming down to us. And, and there's the question, right? Is the, is the old heavens and old earth passing away? Is this world that we're sitting on now going to be just destroyed and then God's going to start fresh? And it's a, it's a good question. I think there's reasons to believe that actually what John is talking about here, what he's seeing is this world, this very world that we are part of right now, remade, recreated, renewed. Uh, and and if you look, think of it this way, this, this world is the world, don't forget, that God himself made, right? So in the six days of creation, God is speaking this world into existence, and at the e end of every day of creation, he steps back and he says, it's good. At the end of the six days, he looks back at everything that he made and says, it's very good. And we know this world has been stained by sin, but the reality is, is that God has never left his world, Right? He, he still is involved with it. Even though sin enters, God has still been involved with our world. He, he's so involved that, in fact, he actually took on flesh. So actual molecules of this physical world that God made, Jesus himself took on as his body and lived as a part of this world. God is not done with this world that he made. And, 
sometimes it's helpful for me to think, you know, sin is a stain, but it's not the fabric itself of our world. You know, if I, if I spill coffee on my shirt, which I do all the time, uh, I don't just throw away the shirt and get a new one, right? I, I, I clean it. I, I wash it so that the fabric itself stays good. The, the stain is removed. And I think what we have here in Revelation 21 and 22 is a picture of our world, but it's washed. It's, it's redeemed. It's recreated. It's renewed. And it's, it's re-gifted back to us again at, to be everything that God intended for it to be. Uh, Paul, Paul gives us an intriguing word on this subject in Romans chapter 8. And he says, The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So in the same way that we have this longing that's sort of unmet, Paul, Paul is saying the creation itself is groaning in these, these pains of childbirth and it, it's subjected to futility, but it's, it's, it's done this in hope that it will one day be set free from its bondage to corruption, that it too will obtain this glory that we are going to receive. When you think of what's going to happen to us at death, we, we die, our bodies go into the ground, but on the last day, Jesus raises our bodies together again and we have this, this physical existence once more. And so the, the, the idea seems to be this is our world, renewed, recreated, re-gifted back to us, better than we ever imagined that it could be. Uh, so much like it was before sin entered the world, and we read the first couple chapters of Scripture. This is a beautiful, picture our world with just everything that's wrong with our world, gone. Picture our world with, with every defilement, every pollutant, every stain, every shadow, every perversion, every tragedy, every disappointment, every abuse, every ounce of pain and mourning and disappointment that we've ever felt gone, removed. Our, our, our world just wiped clean of all of this. Everything that's ever made our existence on this earth less than unbearably glorious, God is going to one day wipe away and hand us our world back again. Everything that is bad will be gone, defeated, banished, destroyed forever. And I love this, this phrase here as Jesus on the throne in verse 5 says, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he doesn't, make, I'm, it doesn't say I'm making all new things. He's saying I'm making all things new. And it's this beautiful phrase that needs to just fill our imaginations. Because let's be honest, this world is difficult, right? This life is difficult. And we, as Christians, we rejoice in the Lord and there's this joy that we have. But the reality is we all know this life is rough. Right? So every time that we are turning on the TV and we see despair, we see bombings, we see school shootings, we see injustice, we hear about sex trafficking, all sorts of things that are so just unutterably broken about our world, we need to have in our hearts and our imaginations this statement of Jesus where he says, I'm making all things new. Every time we feel that sting and that disappointment in our life, every time we feel lonely and rejected, we need to hear those words don't worry, I'm making all things new. We need to live with that, that triumphant reality of this. Now, the, the best part in, in, in this whole passage, there's so many good things that we're going to see here, but the best part is, is really what we see in, in verse 3 of chapter 21. And here's where he says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Nothing could be better. Nothing is great about this new Jerusalem, this heavenly city, this new heavens and new earth. Nothing is good about this whole thing apart from this reality that God's dwelling place is now with human beings. And this is really a huge theme throughout Scripture. So in the beginning, when God created the world, he shaped the garden, shaped the Garden of Eden, and into it he placed human beings. And God would actually walk with them through the garden. I mean, it's just this unbroken presence of God just right there with them. And, and we, we lost it when sin entered the world and Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden. But this is what the tabernacle is about, is God's presence now coming to dwell with his people. That's what the temple was about, God's presence being with his people. All of the covenants are about restoring that fellowship with God. And as we go through the biblical storyline, we always see that longing for God's presence. God's real presence is with his people, but never fully. And then we get to Jesus coming, and Jesus comes as Emmanuel, which means God with us. So God's presence is coming back in a stronger way. And and then when Jesus resurrects and goes back to his father, he sends the Holy Spirit to be not Emmanuel, not God with us, but actually now God within us. And it's intensifying, it's stepping up. We are coming closer and closer to this ideal of God dwelling with people. And now we come to the last pages of scripture and we see how it ends. And it's beautiful. The dwelling place of God is with men. God will be with us as our God. We will be his people. We will live with him forever. And it's just such this beautiful, intimate picture. I just, verse four, it just doesn't get more beautiful than verse four here. This idea that God gets rid of every, all the death, all the mourning, all the crying, all the pain. It's just gone from our existence. And you won't find a more beautiful picture in all of scripture than this, that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. See, throughout, throughout Revelation, there's, there's all kinds of crazy things are happening. I mean, God is active in all of it. There, there's, there's judgment, there's war, there's persecution, all kinds of things. And we see God is active in all of it. But typically in Revelation, God is acting through angels who are pouring out judgment or blowing trumpets and things like that. Here we see God actually gets personally, intimately involved and you see God's people coming, and the new creation comes down, and God's people are there, and we picture God just reaching down and wiping the tears from the eyes of his people, just this intimate picture of God's love. It's going to be amazing. Now, I want to, let's, let's keep moving here. There's so much that we can see, so much. Uh, I want to skip the next few verses for now. We'll come back to them. But let's jump down to verse 9. And I'm going to read a really long section, 9 to 27, Um, there's all kinds of stuff in there. I'm going to read it. We'll come back and and look at some of the key features. But I just, as we do it, remember this is John seeing a vision. So see this vision with John. Feel its impact. Try to visualize this in your head as we read together. Revelation 21, 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. 
And, one of the, and the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundation of the wall of the city was adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a gate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. All right, there is a lot there. John sees this picture of this sort of bride city descending from God. And and what he sees is just breathtaking. Now, now it comes down as a bride adorned for her husband. And and in Scripture, we know that the bride of Christ, the bride of Jesus, is actually us. It's it's us as the church. We are the bride of Christ. And, And we get pictures of that in Revelation as well. And now John is shown the bride, and he sees the bride as this, this heavenly city coming down. He gets this picture of a city where we, as God's bride, will dwell with God. And I want to just look at a few aspects of it. One, one thing to see is all the jewels that are mentioned. And, and you know, they're, they're, I have no idea how to say the names of all those jewels. I just took my best guess at it. But um, there's all these jewels, and, and the idea that we get from all this is just brilliant uh, glory, just, just overwhelming brilliance and light flashing everywhere. If you think of, you know, a, a beam of light comes in, and it's, it's white light because light contains every color in the spectrum. It's all joined together. That's why it looks white. And what a gemstone does is the light hits the gem, and, and the gem takes one color out of that whole spectrum that's there in the light, and it, it shines that one color out, showing that one color in all of its beauty. And so we picture this heavenly city just doing that with all these gemstones. All the light comes in, and it's just shining forth all these different colors. And what is the light in Revelation? It says in verse 11, the light is actually the glory of God that's just radiating throughout the whole city. So God's presence, his glory is there, and it's just shining everywhere, being reflected, refracted in every direction, just shining God's beauty everywhere. It's also this picture of just unbelievable extravagance, unbelievable luxury. Uh, the, the, um, John's writing this in the midst of the Roman Empire, and the, the Roman Empire was famous for being just beyond extravagant, just so, uh, you know, wasteful, over-the-top, luxurious with everything. In fact, um, Caesar Augustus boasted that when he came to Rome, he found it made of brick, and when he left, he, made, he left it made out of marble. And he actually could boast that with a, with a straight face. I mean, just taking in mar- marble buildings, right, marble statues, just everything making it more grand and luxurious. But in the midst of that world, John sees this vision of a, of a heavenly city, and it puts 
Augustus's marble city to shame, right? Because it's, it's made of gemstones and every, light's being reflected everywhere. The city itself is made out of pure gold that's just so pure, so refined that it's clear as glass. The streets themselves are paved with gold. It just, it shows how shabby the Roman idea of luxury actually was. This is over the top. It's more than anyone could ever have imagined. And there's the, the gates and the walls here. The gates are 12 gates all around the city, and it's just this, this picture of the, the whole city's just open. It's, it's just open. Come on into this city. The 12 gates are named after the 12 tribes of Israel. So in the Old Testament, Israel is God's people, and God's people were meant to be, as, as God is working to redeem his earth from the effects of the fall, he chooses Israel to be his people that are going to bring the nations to a knowledge of him. And here we see in this, in this new Jerusalem, the 12 gates named after these 12 tribes. And, and what's amazing here is, is who is walking in through these 12 gates named for Israel? It's not Israel walking through the gates. Israel's name's on the gates, but who's walking through? It's the nations. It's the kings of the earth. It's, it's, it's all the rest of the world coming into these gates that are named for Israel. And it's this beautiful picture of exactly what Israel was always meant to be. It was always to be about Israel as a light to the world to bring people into God, to what God is doing. And so here now, we, they, they failed at that tragically at times, but here now we get this picture of the gates are named for the tribes and in through these gates come all the nations of the world. And the city that the foundation is, is named after the 12 apostles. So Jesus had his 12 disciples, his 12 apostles, and these, they, they are the foundation for the church and here we see the, the gates are named for Israel, the foundations are named for, for the church, and we just see this beautiful picture of everything being blended together. Just as Paul says, there's no, no Jew or Greek, all are one in Christ. This picture of dwelling together with God. Now, the size of this thing is amazing. I, I read the specs here, 12,000 stadia. Nobody gasped when I read that. I, I don't know. Um, maybe you're using different measurements. Uh, in fact, Paul says, you know, it's, it's by a man's measurement, not an angel's. You know, and we're like, okay, thanks. That helps a lot, John. That's, <laughs> I, was, I was wondering which standard of stadia you were using there. Um, but 12,000 stadia, to put it in perspective, is just massive. It's, it's roughly 1,500 miles. So we're talking about a city that spans basically from here to the middle of Texas. Not, not a country, but a city, right? That goes, so it goes that far, and it goes that wide. It's this huge, just square structure. And then also, the city goes 1,500 miles straight up into the air as well. We're just, it's, it's massive. It's unlike anything that we could ever imagine, this huge, massive place where we get to dwell with God. And, and in the Roman world, John is writing this in the midst of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is the most powerful thing around. It's so expansive. It's taken over pretty much the whole known world. This, this, the footprint of this city, 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles, covers basically the same landmass as the Roman Empire at that time. So for John, he sees this city coming down. It's the size of the whole Roman Empire. It's the size of his whole known world that he's familiar with. And not only that, not only is it the same size, it's the same size in its footprint, but then it continues up for 1,500 miles into the sky, just dwarfing anything the Roman Empire at this time thought that it had accomplished. What God is bringing down to his people is just so much more lavish than anyone could imagine. And it's weird for us to think of a city that's shaped like a cube like this, 1,500, 1,500, 1,500. Throughout history and in the Bible, there's no structures that are cube-shaped except for one. 
There's one structure in the Bible that is shaped like a cube, and significantly, that structure is the Holy of Holies in the midst of the temple of God. So in the temple, you would come to meet with God, to see his presence, and in the temple, there is this Holy of Holies, this cube-shaped structure where the, the Ark of the Covenant was, where, where the high priest would come in once a year to, to make, make a sacrifice there, and God's presence would actually be in this place. In fact, as the, the high priest, he came in with a breastplate that had 12 precious gemstones on it. And it seems like John's list here of 12 stones, it lines up almost exactly with that list of what would be on the priest's breastplate. In any case, what John is doing, he looks back at that reality. He sees this picture of this cube-shaped structure. And the idea is, this whole city is the Holy of Holies. This whole city is where God's presence dwells with nothing holding us back. In fact, we ask, okay, this great city, where's the temple in this city? John tells us, I didn't see a temple there because the whole city is the temple. The whole city is, is the, the, th- and the, the God himself and the lamb, they are the temple in the midst of this city. It, John, John is, uh, throughout Revelation, John d- draws on so many Old Testament prophecies. I mean, just hundreds and hundreds of Old Testament prophecies. In this section, he's drawing on Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48. Ezekiel is uh, preaching to these, uh, these exiles, the Jewish people. In exile, they're being punished because they weren't following God, but he promises them, don't worry, I'm going to restore you. I'm going to bring you back. And then in Ezekiel 40 to 48, he gives this blueprint for a new temple that will be built where God's people can come and worship God in the future. And John draws on all of that imagery, so much of it. If you, if you want to, I mean, it's, it's a lot of it's measuring and things like that. But those chapters John draws on here to say, basically, this whole city is the temple and God's people are there with God, living with him face to face. Absolutely unbelievable. God's presence is there. There's not even a sun or a moon or stars there because who needs those? The light is coming directly from God and directly from the Lamb. And all these connections too, I mean, there, there's the, uh, we can ask these questions. Who's the, who's the temple in the city? Well, it's God and it's the Lamb. Who's, where does the light come from in the city? Well, it comes from God and from the Lamb. In chapter 22, we're going to see a throne. And whose throne is it? It's God's and the Lamb's. Throughout Revelation, John never says Jesus is God. But throughout the whole book, he keeps equating Jesus and God together. One is being worshipped, and next thing you know, the other is being worshipped. They're being worshipped together. John does not separate between God and Jesus in this book. It shows that Jesus' divinity in every page here. Okay, so so much more that we could say about that whole thing, but I want to make sure we have some time to talk through the implications of it. Let's look at the first five verses of Revelation 22 here. And, uh, and as we do, okay, John was using sort of temple imagery, a, a picture of a city. Now, in this section, John is going to draw imagery from the Garden of Eden. And he pictures our existence with God as this garden, the Garden of Eden restored for us. So picture this as I read, tw- chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. 
So now we get this picture. Okay, the beginning of Genesis starts so great because God has put his people in his garden. But the next thing we know, they, they've sinned and they're expelled from the garden. <clears throat> and now we come to the very end. First two pages of scripture, the Garden of Eden. The last two pages of scripture were once again in the garden with God. This beautiful picture now of fellowship restored. And there's the river of life flowing through this place, giving life. In, in, in Ezekiel, in that passage about the temple, Ezekiel sees uh, the temple and there's a river flowing out from the threshold of the temple. And it goes out and out and it keeps getting deeper and deeper and finally it flows into the Dead Sea, which is just this salty mess. And as the water flows into the Dead Sea, it actually heals the water, makes it from salt water into fresh water and all sorts of, of fish life just thrives in this healed river. So we see this river now in the New Jerusalem, in this heavenly city, and it just is giving life. And there's the trees alongside, the leaves of the trees are for uh, the healing of the nations. Once again, all of the people of the world together, uh, not just Jews, but Jews and Gentiles side by side being healed in this place. And we see the, the tree of life. In, in the Garden of Eden, there was a tree of life in the middle of the garden, and Adam and Eve could eat from it, and, and they would live forever. When they're expelled, God actually put a, an angel there with a flaming sword guarding the entrance to the Garden of Eden so that Adam and Eve couldn't come back and eat from the tree of life and live forever. And here we see the tree of life once again in the restored garden, and now it's open access. Now they can come and they can actually eat and partake of the life of the tree of life. Just beautiful, beautiful pictures. And okay, there's so much that, that we see here, and there's so much that is amazing about this vision the, the jewels, the, the brightness, the, the temple structure, the city, the bride, the tree of life, all of it is just absolutely amazing. But I would say actually the, the climax to the whole thing comes in verse 4 of chapter 22 with this simple phrase, he says, they will see his face. And this is it. This is what we've always been longing for. This is what we've always needed. As we long for the presence of God, now we're finally told as we turn to the last pages of Scripture, we're going to see his face. We're going to be there with him. We'll be able to look at him face to face. This is something that, that does not happen in Scripture until we get to the, the very end and we get to see the very face of God. Okay, so let's jump back to the little passage that we skipped, okay? Chapter 21, verse 5. Because, okay, we look at this beautiful picture, and it's what we need. We need to be in this city, right? There, nothing matters more. Nothing that we could attain in this life could mean more to us than being a part of this city, being here with no mourning, no crying, no pain, just the presence of God perfectly with us. Nothing could matter more. We have to ask the question, how do we get into this city, right? Who, who gets to take part in this thing? Is it the is it the super-Christians? Is it everybody? Who gets to be a part of this? And John answers that for us in these verses in chapter 21. So starting in verse 5, the one seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the springs of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So who gets to enter this heavenly city? John says, it's the conquerors. It's the one who overcomes. 
Now, that, that's a significant phrase in Revelation. So Revelation is actually written to seven churches in, this, in the midst of this Roman world, seven churches. And in chapters two and three, there's letters specifically from Jesus to these seven churches. And in each letter, each church is told, here are some things you're doing well in following Christ and holding firm to him. And here are some areas where you're compromising. You're turning away from Christ. You're siding with the evil empires of this world. And each church gets, gets sort of one and the other. And then each church is called to overcome. To the one who overcomes, God is going to grant that they'll get to take part in this new creation. So the book begins with this promise to, okay, here's what you're doing good. Here's what you need to focus on and fix. It's a warning against these things. And, and, but overcome. You've got to conquer. You've got to overcome. And we go through the book of Revelation, and actually it's kind of terrifying. Because God's people, the followers of the Lamb, are being put to death. They're being persecuted. They're being beheaded for the sake of following Christ because they're refusing to renounce their faith in Christ. And so to get finally to this place in the book of Revelation, who enters? It's the one who conquers, just as we're told at the beginning. Conquer and you'll enter. We get through. We see God's people dying left and right. And here's the crazy thing, is that the, the powers, the evil forces of the world, the powers of this world are the ones who are actively oppressing the Christians, the followers of the Lamb. And as they put them to death, Revelation says that these evil world forces are conquering the followers of the Lamb. It, it's kind of a bleak, dark picture. The followers of the Lamb are dying. They're being conquered over by the beast, by the evil world systems. But Revelation also says about the exact same events, so in the exact event where the, where the world systems chop off the heads of the believers and they conquer over them, it says that in doing that, these followers of the Lamb are also the ones who conquer over the forces of this world. We conquer over the forces of evil by not relinquishing our, our firm grasp, our testimony to the Lamb. This, this became, I happened to be studying this passage, teaching a class in Revelation as we heard not that long ago about the 21 Egyptian Coptic Christians that were beheaded for their faith by ISIS. And, and ISIS lines them up, right? And we hear about them, them being beheaded because they won't renounce Christ. And it's, it's devastating, right? You just want to fall on your knees. You just want to cry and just say, how can this happen? How can the evil in this world be prevailing? Because as we look at it from our worldly perspective, they lost. These martyrs lost. ISIS is too strong. There's nothing we can do about it. What can we do? They're conquered and they're lost, but Revelation actually looks at that same event and says, no. Those 21 Christians refused to renounce their faith in Christ. They chose death over saying that Jesus was not their Lord, and in doing that, they actually conquered ISIS that day. These are the people of the cross. They are the ones who followed Jesus in the same kind of death that Jesus chose on our behalf. These are the ones who conquered. Now this probably sounds scary. I, actually, I want to just say one more thing about that. It, John actually also says it, it, the, the cowards are not the ones that enter, okay? So it, as he says, the ones who conquer are the ones who enter the new Jerusalem, but they're not, they're not going to be any cowards there. He specifically points this out. And in the context of Revelation, he's not talking about, um, you know, people that are afraid of doing a backflip on a snowboard or something. I'm definitely a coward in that sense, okay? He's talking about people that are devoted to Christ that say, I will follow you, Jesus, but then when things get rough, they turn aside, right? Like, I'll follow Jesus. Oh, but not if it's hard. I'm not going to do that. Uh, the, the people that, that he, he lists a bunch of other things, the faithless, right? They're not faithful to Christ. They're faithless and they walk away. There are the idolaters who choose to side with the evil world systems rather than siding with God and worshiping him. 
so that those that, that, that back off, that step away, that aren't bold enough to follow through to pursue Christ, these are the ones that are cast out. And the reality is that this doesn't mean, I mean, it might be a scary thought, but it just doesn't mean that it's just like the ex-marines that get into the new heavens and new earth, right? It's not just about being the biggest or the strongest from this world's perspective. What it really comes down to is it, it comes down to do you love Jesus? And I mean really, do you love him? Do, are you clinging to him so much that it doesn't matter what comes up or what you're threatened with, you're not gonna let go? That, that's all it takes is a firm grip on Christ to say, I'll follow him, it doesn't matter what, I'm following him. And God graciously leads us through that. And I think sometimes, you know, we, in America, we, we think, okay, yeah, I, I, would, I would die for Christ, right? If it came down to it, and in some ways that'd be almost easier because you could make a decision in one moment to say, all right, now I'm going to be brave and I'm going for it, right? But this also applies. There were tons of people in, the, in this world that John's writing to in the letters to the seven churches that were compromising from Christ, not by choosing life over choosing Christ, but by choosing to take part in, a, in an idolatrous stuff. There, there's people worshiping the emperor at this time. There's false religions at this time. There's all sorts of money to be gained by renouncing your faith in Christ. And, and so I wonder for us, how many of us are going to be faced with, with actual death rather than let go of Christ? Probably not very many of us. But, but really, I mean, what, it doesn't take that much for most of us, right? Maybe a better job offer is all it takes to get us to compromise on our faith. Maybe the prospect of making a lot of money on a business deal is all it takes to draw us away to compromise instead of following Jesus. Maybe some great romantic interest is all it takes to get us to throw away our faith and to follow the world rather than following Christ. And the reality is it's all about love for Christ. It's all about clinging to him. It's all about following him. And those who do are the ones who conquer. And those who conquer are the ones who enter into this heavenly city. The reality is that the, the city is open to all of us. It's, it's there. The invitation is on the table. We all get to enter. The very reason that Revelation was written as a book was to help all of us see our options. There's the wicked city of this world, and there's this heavenly city of God, and we choose which path we want to take. And Revelation was written to encourage us, don't choose the wicked city, don't compromise, follow the Lamb and get into that new Jerusalem. And Revelation call, it contains two calls. It calls us in chapter 18 to come out of the wicked city, and it calls us at the very end, just past what we read this morning, to wash our robes in the blood of the Lamb and to enter the heavenly city by its gates. That, that's the call. To, to Jesus shed his blood on our behalf as a sacrifice, and so we come and we wash our robes in that blood. It's just this picture of taking hold of what Jesus has done for us, clinging to him, following him, being washed and made clean through him. So we have to wrestle with this. Which city are we going to be a part of? And we know we need to enter that heavenly city. So just a couple of implications before we close here. Uh, this, is, this is our future. And, and God insists, as he tells this to John, he says, these words are trustworthy and true. I am so, so thankful that these words are in my Bible. I am so thankful. I, a couple of months ago, my, my grandfather passed away, godly man. And I was able to look at my daughters, look them in the face and tell them, don't worry, you are going to see grandpa again. And I can say that to them and I can actually mean it, right? It's not just some useful lie that I can tell them. I actually believe we will see him again. And so as we lose loved ones, we can have that assurance and know for sure if they, if they are followers of the Lamb, we get to gather again in this new Jerusalem and it's going to be amazing. 
As we watch the news and this world gets more and more desperate, as the bad guys are winning, as evil prevails in our world, we can look and we can say, no, this is not how it ends. This is not, the, the bad do not come out on top. Evil does not get to stay forever. God wins in the end and he brings heaven to us and we will dwell with him forever. He will wipe every tear from our eyes. And just another amazing reality about this passage is as great as this is going to be in the future, and it is going to be great, we actually get to participate in these realities now. So we're seeing this amazing promise in the future where God is going to make all things new, and he speaks those words, I'm making all things new, a new heavens and a new earth. But one of the most amazing things about the New Testament is that God actually says that this new creation has already begun starting with what Christ has done. So in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says this amazing statement, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. See, we're going to experience that fully in the new heavens and the new earth, but right now, Paul says, something miraculous has happened with the death and the resurrection of Christ, and because of what Christ has done, part of that new creation is actually happening now. God's future is sort of invading our presence. It's breaking into our lives right now, and we actually stand now as members of this new creation. Paul says that, that our citizenship is in heaven. So we are members of that heavenly city, but we stand here now as those who have already been made new. The old has passed away. The new has come. We're, we're this, this signpost, this reminder that this is all going to happen in the future, and it's starting now with us sitting here in our lives, this newness of life is taking place all around us. This is actually what Jesus meant when he promises us eternal life for believing in him. It's not just life that goes on and on and on forever. It's actually this life that we're going to experience in eternity with God. That eternal life is taken from the future and it's bestowed on us in the present and we experience it now, this life and life abundantly that Jesus offers. It's amazing that this, as amazing as this future is, it, it, it is here with us now. It's here in us now. We read of this heavenly city where there is no temple because God himself is the temple, and we remember that we ourselves are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He dwells within us as individuals and also in us as the church collectively together. We're being built into this temple for God. So my hope, as, I, as I've prayed through, studied this passage, prepared to share it with you, my prayer is that this vision of where we are headed, of what God will do to wrap up history, will so shape our imaginations that, that we dream about it, that, that we never see the tragedies and the hardships and the joys of this world without thinking of how it's going to be in the end, of where God is bringing this, and, and to have that increasingly take shape and take root in our hearts. So we're going to pray. We're going we're gonna to worship together um, some more and just thank God for these amazing realities. Um, if, you, if you would like prayer for anything at all, um, we're going to have prayer, prayer teams on the side. You can come up and talk to somebody, um, pray with somebody. Let's pray together right now. Lord God, it, it, is, it is beyond amazing that we get this future. Lord, I just, I stand here as someone that knows how little I deserve this. Lord, I, Lord, I am faithless, I am weak, I am, I am undesirable, but Lord, somehow you have chosen to save me, to make me into a piece of this new creation, Lord, and I thank you so much for that. Lord, thank you that you are a God who, who does not simply discard, but a God who renews, a God who reshapes us, a God who has this amazing future prepared for us. 
Lord, we, we cling so desperately to the things of this world, to the things that seem so meaningful and satisfying to us now. But Lord, please just loosen our grip on all of that. Fill our hearts and our minds with this picture of what we have in you and what is coming because of what you've done. Lord, please just be more powerful, more precious, more appealing to us than anything we can encounter here and now. And may we be those people that cling firmly to you no matter what comes. We ask this in Jesus' name.